0: Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the honor of welcoming Molly Bloom to the show today. She is an inspirational keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and best-selling author. She might best be known for her memoir, Molly's Game, which was adapted into an award-winning film of the same name, starring Jessica Chastain, But she also should be known for being an amazing skier. By the age of 21, she was on the U.S. ski team and was ranked number three in North America in Moguls and made the Olympic qualifiers. But a horrific crash ended her Olympic dreams, although she still skis. But this led her to what she thought would be a year sabbatical in L.A., Her journey from Olympic hopeful to graduating summa cum laude to a waitress in Los Angeles to building and operating the largest and most notorious private poker game in the world is what we are going to talk about today. I'm so excited to have you on the show, Molly.
1: Excited to be here.
0: Well, you know, first off, I want to start by saying that uh, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. I know it took us a minute. (laughs) Technology was not... On our side and it's beginning. not on our side but you put the two of us together we clearly can do anything So, <laughs> I'm gonna start out with what I always do which is something I call bullish and bearish um, nothing too painful bullish you're for it bearish you're against it and uh, are you ready I'm ready all right the first one which we'll get into in a second but mobsters drinking apple martinis <laughs>
1: <laughs> um bullish
0: all right that's what it I humanizes thought
1: humanizes them right
0: it does and we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about that in a second because I love that all right the next one is uh robots competing in winter olympics
1: so in our traditional winter olympics not like the yeah. robot winter olympics yeah bearish
0: ah huh. Good. I agree with you, although you never know what might happen. <laughs> I'm all
1: for the robots having their own Winter Olympics, right? But
0: Let's go for that. Let's go for that. <laughs> or avatars. Avatars. I could be an Olympic champion with my robot and not really be it myself. All right. right. All right, the third one. Uh, poker is a game of skill, not chance.
1: Oh, I'm absolutely bullish.
0: That's what I thought. All right, so... I've woven the two loves you have. Ski <laughs> and poker.
1: <laughs> I don't, listen, I'm not claiming poker as a love.
0: <laughs> well, that might be true. But what I love most, for those of you who are listening who did not see the movie Molly's Game, first thing I'd say is go see it. Because I saw it in Hawaii. I was home on vacation. I'm like, I'm going to go see this movie. And like that was the first of, like I think, a dozen times I ended up watching it. But um, what I loved most about it, uh, besides the sort of allure of the story was like how masterful you were in the whole kind of marketing and draining (laughs) yourself in the life of poker. And, Mm -hmm. and so maybe what you could do is kind of give people a little bit of the background of sort of skiing, how, what got you to that, that sort of opportunity from a poker perspective. And then I definitely want to double click into the business side of it. Sure.
1: Um, You know, as you mentioned in the intro, I I, um, had very high hopes for an Olympic career in skiing. Um, And despite having a a fully fused thoracic spine, um, I I ended up making the U.S. ski team and and making it to U.S. nationals on on an Olympic year, which ended up being an Olympic qualifying event. Um, I crashed at that event and got a very stern sort of sit down from doctors saying, you have a full spine of metal and screws and you're, you're a mobile skier and you're going to continue falling on your head like this and you're, and you're really playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. So, you know, I was in my last year at the University of Colorado and just needed to take a year off to regroup, you know, that this, this Olympic dream had been cut short. My heart was pretty broken. And so I just wanted to go somewhere and be warm and be a kid, and uh, I I got to Los Angeles for this year hiatus and got like a million jobs because that's how many you need to support your life in <laughs> Beverly Hills, and um, ended up one of those jobs. I ended up uh, serving drinks at a poker game, and it wasn't just any poker game. It was a poker game with people who move the needle on the world stage. You know, politicians and. A-list actors and heads of studios, and heads of banks, and you know, tech geniuses, and it was a very compelling environment to be in. And then I also recognized um, that when people are, are operating with chips, um, the economics are very favorable. Um, and so I, I saw two, kind of a dual opportunity, one, to make a lot of money um, in a short amount of time, and two, to build an insane network. Um, and to be able to, you know, sort of be impressive around super powerful people.
0: Yeah, and I think there's two things there, right? I think people underestimate the power of networking. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that you um, had a opportunity present itself. And you said, Okay, Mm I've kind of two choices, right? I can keep doing it the way I'm doing it and be the waitress at this you know, poker game, which is great. I make good tips. And now I only need to do 900,000 jobs, not a million jobs. In <laughs> so right. that's a plus, right? Right. But, you know, maybe there is uh, something more to this. And so what was your aha moment that that led you to say, hmm, there, there might be something more for me here than doing it, approaching it the way I am?
1: Um, I really wanted to own the game. You know, I wanted to be the owner and operator, and I wanted to be in charge of who, who to give the seats to. Um, for, for both of those reasons that I that I just mentioned for the economics and for the uh, the sort of access um, it, I'm an information junkie you know I love to have inside information I love to be privy to to learning and to and to the real education of the streets you know of, of life and to be able to be a fly on the wall in these rooms with people who represented, all different, um, sectors at at the very top of those sector was so interesting to me and so valuable to me. And I also, um, started to see how other poker games were run and I knew I could do it better because I knew, um, that I had a sort of like more well-rounded understanding of what the experience could look like. Um, whereas most people running games are thinking about their bottom line, like, how can I take the most money off the table and give the least back? And I saw that this thing was about more than poker. It was about, you know, for for five to 10 hours, these people got to come into this room and disappear from their life. And they got to have this totally immersive experience that was about community. It was about competition. It was about mythology. It was about escapism and feeling like, you know, and the fantasy of it all. And I just knew that I could create that in a better way than anyone else had.
0: Yeah. And I think the power of experiences is what you really understood. And, and mm-hmm. from everything, from like where you held the games, the music that was played, the drinks that were served, the food that was served, who served them, all of that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I recognized the feeling that those beautiful hotels elicited in myself that this incredible food elicited in myself. I I was experiencing this world with fresh eyes. And um, I also know uh, how good it feels to be taken care of and how good it feels to be um, to feel special. And, and all these sort of like components of human psychology belonged here, you know, and, and, and Vegas understood that, but this, this sort of underground uh, business of, of poker. No one understood that in that business. So of course I recognized a real competitive advantage.
0: Yeah, and you studied sort of who the audience was and also kind of who the audience was that you wanted to attract, kind of both sides of it, and, and then kind of tried to create that environment for them. Yes. Yeah. And I think I, even if you look at business today, like if you think about what's going on with retail or, you know, where people or companies are really struggling to say, wow, everything's moving online. Like you could even pick poker, right? Like I'm going to play poker at my privacy of my own home online. I'm going to go to Vegas or I'm going to play potentially in some private game. Mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, a legal one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, you know, you're making a decision and it's like, well, am I going to go, am I going to eat at home? I'm going to eat at restaurant A or B or C. And and many people are making decisions uh, with, you know, not only with their dollars, but based on the experiences that they have. So to your point, someone's going to spend seven or eight, 10 hours with you locked up with these same five, six, seven people in this experience. Uh, it better be really compelling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that people got lazy about is poker is such a compelling experience for people who like to play that they knew that that was all it would take to get them there. So they they created the minimum for the environment. So I knew if I could get the poker there and create this incredible environment that I could potentially completely monopolize this this business which was legal at the time you know the way that i was doing it was legal for the first seven and a half years
0: so through the seven and a half years right the, mm-hmm. the and i'll get into the other side of the the street in a second but when you're when you're in that first seven and a half and, and maybe step through like now all of a sudden people want to come and play at your game it was no longer sort of you know molly going hey come play in my game <laughs> this was right people are like i want to come and so you quickly realized that the experience was differentiating yourself. And so the game was growing and you were expanding and all those things were happening, which once again, goes back to the you know, comment I made a minute ago about how experiences can completely differentiate you compared mm-hmm. to those same high rollers going and playing in high roller room in Las Vegas. It wasn't about that, right? It was about what you had created that community, that power of that experience and the networking that they were having at those tables as well.
1: Well, I I knew that with the right experience, you can create brand advocates. And this business was all word of mouth. And so I tried to give people an amazing story to tell every night, you know, whether it was playing with um, famous athletes who were having the season of their life or whether the stakes were so high or whether there was so much action or, you know, whatever these buzz words for the poker community were, um, I focused on continually delivering on that.
0: So I'm guessing that there was also, you know, as an entrepreneur, that you were going through your own growth, you know, personally, of not only at how the game was growing, but you as a businesswoman. Oh, for sure. What do I want to do? What do I want to be? How do I see this game evolving? Where do I want to take it? That That was happening simultaneously during that first seven years.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, my plan was, the whole time was, to save a bunch of money and then parlay this into something that was um, actually more scalable and um, you know I I could sustain a normal life while doing I mean you know this was running these games even though they were legal for seven and a half years or whatever like you're a bit of a renegade whether you like it or not you know I was getting kicked out of local banks and and I you know I had a I had a, a bit of a reputation and, you know, it's gambling. So it's, it's not, it's not a hundred percent presentable.
0: Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like legalized marijuana in California. Now it's like, they have all this money and no banks will take it. <laughs> right. I felt that way often. <laughs> so what do you want me to do with this money? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. You don't uh, want my money. I don't, you understand. don't want my money. Right. It's, it's right. It's fascinating. Okay. So now let's, Let's flip the coin and go to the. All right. So seven and a half years goes by. You wanted to parlay in this to something else, um, you know, that was more scalable and to give you your life back, not be such a renegade. And then something else happened. What changed in you that that, you know, know, sort of for our listeners that don't know the story of, of sort of what what happened that took you down a path that you probably at the beginning were not expecting?
1: Well, I think the whole path was something I wasn't expecting, but, um, I would say the big market change uh, at the turning point for this thing was, um, in the sixth year of running these games, I had made millions of dollars. I had achieved my goal of building this incredible, extremely valuable network, uh, having relationships, real relationships with people of power and of clout. Um, and in, in the sixth year, I found out one of the most powerful, most visible players was cheating. And there was a whole sort of like event that went down and, and it culminated in, in him going behind my back and taking the game. And so in, you know, almost an instant, everything that I had built, everything that I had, all the players that I had recruited, this, this brand that I would created was gone. Um, and I got very... I got very determined, like I saw nothing else other than victory because I felt like there, it was such injustice and, and I was so upset. Um, And, and to be honest, you know, I grew up in this very high achieving family and I spent most of my life feeling like a nobody. And in a lot of ways, this game made me a somebody. So that drove me like, like nothing else.
0: Yeah, but I think also your athletics, too. It's like the crash and the surgery and them telling you you're not going to ski. What did you do? You got back on your skis. I mean, there is no question that that was the decision you were going to make. I mean, and, I should and, have
1: made a better decision, but I didn't. Um, and, yeah. in, you know, I guess in some ways I'm glad I didn't, but I didn't. Obviously, it, it wasn't great where it ultimately led. But so I, I just started taking trips to New York and it was 2008. Um, so building a poker game on Wall Street in 2008, you can imagine the challenge. I already didn't have a lot of contacts and the economy, you know, it was like end of days for the economy. But um, I just went into networking hyperdrive and I got creative and I got outside the box and I hired socialites to help me recruit and I and I greased the palms of the major d's at the nicest restaurants and the concierge, at the nicest hotels and Vegas casino hosts and Atlantic city casino hosts until I had put together this, this poker game, um, which was kind of an outgrowth of a game that existed occasionally in New York city. But I, I created a sort of like weekly, um, business out of it and it was a $250,000 buy-in. It was the biggest. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. It was the biggest private poker game in the world that went off regularly. And, um, I also, you know, I didn't want to just put all my eggs in one basket. So I decided that I was going to take over all of New York City poker and the way of that course. I was going to, <laughs> of course. And, oh, youth, it's just a charming state, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> it really is. Um, and so I decided that the way that I would kind of take out all the competition is I would have the best games in town, have the biggest games in town. And I would also become the bank because most poker games are Ponzi schemes, meaning that the, the owner operator only pays out if they get paid. So everybody that plays in these private poker games in New York city is terrified that they're going to go risk a bunch of money and not get paid. And it's a very real, um, legitimate concern. It happens all the time. So I had a stellar reputation and I also was capitalized enough to, to cover a game per week, you know? Um, and, and so I start. I became the bank and I settled and people used to say like an MDB Inc. check is as good as cash, which were, you know, that was my account that I paid, um, my poker game out of people would trade those checks at games like real currency. Um, and so, you know, that worked. I, I, I obliterated the competition and I built the biggest poker game in the world from the ashes. Um, but there was something that changed in me um, and I became, I, I, I lost all balance in my life. In LA, I had a serious boyfriend and I had friends and I had a life. Um, in New York, I was like all poker all the time. When can I get another game going on? I just became obsessed and I became very, you know, greedy and money was no longer this thing that I had a healthy respect for. It was just, um, I was like ravenous for it all, for power, for money. And I started, um, creating a pretty unsustainable, uh, environment for myself. And I started doing, taking like speed to stay up for all the hours that the games lasted. And then I started, you know, taking pills to come down and drinking a lot and just pushing people of substance away and losing like my connection with things that were real and good. And, um, You know, I started to make some pretty bad choices, sloppy choices and ignore signs. Um, so that's where it went in New York.
0: And then there was the martinis.
1: (laughs) Well, there was, there was two (laughs) unfortunate uh, run-ins with two different organized crime syndicates. So I recruited unbeknownst to me. Um, these guys—they were Russian-American businessmen, very educated, very uh, sophisticated. Um, their stories checked out. I had private investigators vet everyone, and these guys wanted to play poker all the time for more money than I'd ever seen. These were the games where I saw someone lose a hundred million dollars, and it turns out they were not legitimate businessmen, which is obviously to the, to everyone but me, like obvious, you know. <laughs> Um, but, uh, they ended up being, um, you know, they were running the biggest auto insurance fraud scheme in New York city history, and they had deep ties to the Russian mob. So the fed started listening to their phones, um, which means they now know about this, you know, they're now listening to mine. Um, during this time, I also made a choice to cover some of, um, my risk by taking a rake at various games where I felt like, um, I had more risk and that put me in the direct and direct violation of the federal statute. I knew not to do it. I did it anyway. Um, and I can explain my rationale around that. But, and then the last thing that happened was, yes, I had a run in with the Italian mob who, you know, basically told me if I wanted to continue to operate my games, I needed to partner with them. And I obviously turned them down. And then they sent someone to my apartment and, um, the guy stuck a gun in, in my mouth and um, beat, beat me up really badly and uh, you know took every t- emptied the contents of my safe and then told me that it was not an option to um, to turn this off or down. And if I told anyone then um, they would hurt my family. So things got real dark real
0: fast. Well so you it's sort of like, Molly, this girl who races down the mountain, (laughs) gets her back fused, comes back, makes it to the Olympics, Olympic trials, right? Gets hurt again, like decides to take a year off and go to warm country (laughs) in Los Angeles, working a million jobs to find a way to live in Beverly Hills lands herself in a celebrity-driven, high-power Silicon Valley poker game that's kind of a la Ponzi scheme, right? To the East Coast Italian mob meets Russian mob. And for those of you listening, you're like, there's no way this is like a movie. You're right. It's called Molly's Game. (laughs) It is a movie. However, like all of this comes down... The ending to our story today, right, of the of of this kind of the movie portion, right, of is the feds knock on your door and everything comes to light.
1: Yeah. So um, <laughs> that that basically that you know it, it it was a series of events. First, the feds seized all my assets, and then um, told me that I. Was you know that that they knew that I was making my money illegally. Then I went away for two years to try to rebuild. Um, when I finally got a job and finally sort of got a a, a start, um, that's when I got arrested and federally indicted. They had been building the case against me for, for two for two years, um, and that and then I finally got sentenced in um, twenty fourteen.
0: And so, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, right? Because I'm going from the movie version, but uh, yeah, yeah. that's why I said there's probably a lot of liberties in there. You know, nothing. You know, the
1: movie is pretty is pretty factually accurate. There's definitely. um, I always say that Aaron Sorkin makes us all sound funnier and smarter than we are, but I worked so closely with Aaron over those eight months on the script that the 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 storyline is how it happened.
0: Well, the, one of the most like compelling, there was a lot in the movie that I found super compelling. But, you know, after I watched it a bunch of times, I started seeing other things that were more compelling. Than, uh-huh. Yeah. But, it, you know, at the, at the end when it was like, look, Molly, you can just tell us everything, you know, like give us your black book, tell us all this stuff, or mm-hmm. this is what's going to happen to you. Um, mm-hmm. I loved that you just basically said, and, I, and I've heard you say it on, on your keynotes as well, right? That, that all you wanted to keep was your name. You're like, you, it just didn't mm-hmm. matter about anything else that, that that's sort of what was most important to you. But I also found that you didn't flip because in so many other situations, uh, we always see them flip. Like, sure, I'll tell you to mm-hmm. get myself, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. get myself out of the situation.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I had a, a very important part of believing in myself enough to to even try for redemption a very important step was to own that this was all my fault and to own that if i'm going to resurrect any power and any way forward i've got to take responsibility for it all you know and and that was a really powerful moment for me a really hard moment for me but i also saw it so clearly None of this is, this was nobody's fault, but my own. Um, and so when that offer was on the table, I was like, listen, I believe I can make money again. Maybe the rest of the world doesn't think I can make money again, but I believe I can. And I believe that if I have to go to jail for a certain amount of time, then I will survive that and I will be okay. But to like completely like just fold and take no responsibility and be willing to stand on other people's heads for my own actions, like that didn't feel like something I could survive.
0: Yeah. And like I said, I mean, I, I, you know, especially in this day and age with all the things that have been going on, you know, in the news in the world with the me too movement, with all this stuff, how many do not sort of take accountability for their decisions and their actions and just sort of go, this is no one else's fault, but my own, how many people start, spouting off everybody else's name and then to try to lessen the fact that they have done something. So, you know, kudos to you because, um, you, we just don't see that very often.
1: Well, you know, I, I'm not going to like, let me be really honest in the beginning. I tried that out. <laughs> you, <know what laughs> you mean, I tried like blaming other people and I was just like, this is so damn powerless. You know, this is like, there's zero power in this. So, um, and, and I, I hate feeling powerless, um, and so I just realized that a it was the truth, and b it was the only way forward. And I desperately wanted to be back in the arena. I did not want to be where I was, which is in no man's land, and nobody wanted to talk to me. And everybody whispered and said she's done. And you know, like even like even my parents, uh, as supportive as they were, they looked at me like, "What do we do for her?" you know, I hated being in that position. That was like, for me, that was the absolute worst case scenario of life.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, so many lessons in this whole thing. Like I I love the, you know, just as the marketer and salesperson, your ability to Mm -hmm. see opportunity and to lean into those experiences and, you know, take that athletic sort of fire you have in your belly and use it for, you know, what you focus on, like whatever it ends up being, whatever it is today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, you know, I have no question. You set your mind to it. It'll happen. Right. Because, you know, that's kind of who and what you are. That's why when you're like, oh, this is what happened and this is what I did. I'm like, yeah. Is anybody listening surprised that that's what you did? Like, I'm just going to go to New York. I know no one and I'm going to figure out how to make it happen. yeah. And then and then I'm gonna have the feds come and knock down my door and like what else would happen? Yeah. Of course that's what happened.
1: <laughs> when you're the master of disaster, it all
0: happens. Well, so let's end this on a let's end this on a positive, Molly. So since you know all that has happened, obviously that's not what <laughs> defines you. So much more defines you. But you know what are you what are you doing now? What what can people uh, think to hear from from you know Molly coming forward from this point this point on?
1: So in when I. When I got really clear, and I got, and I got sentenced, and I didn't have to go to jail, I was like, "Okay, now put put on your entrepreneurial cap like you never have before, and figure out the way out." You know, and, and what I landed on was the uniqueness of the story, and so that's what led me to write the book, and then to basically hunt down Aaron Sorkin um, to see if he would be willing to 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 write the movie, um, and I just believed like when I looked at where my life was, reputational damage, you know, millions of dollars in debt. Um, and, and, a, a basically, a, a the tabloids had been reporting this as though I was like some t- girl in a tight skirt, you know, instead of like the fact that I built a hundred million dollar business with nothing and, and was, you know, also the financial arm for it. So I just knew I needed a, a rebranding campaign. And I really thought that a book movie would do it, and and it did, um, and so now I am, you know, I'm I'm just leveraging the opportunities that have come from that, um, and so um, I'm writing another book about reinvention um, from the inside out, because not only did I have to change completely change the the external in my life, I had to change the internal. Um, I was in a really dark, hopeless place for a while. And so I did this deep dive into neuroscience, into meditation, into 12 steps, into all these things, and I really successfully changed um, myself from the inside out and, and then also from the outside. So I'm writing about that. I speak a lot, um, and I'm also developing an app that sort of takes the, the, the like loneliness of self-help out of it. Um, And connects you to a community of people, which was paramount for me, and also, you know, sort of gamifies this program of action. So I'm very, at this point in my life, um, I survived the fire, I came out the other side, and what's super compelling to me is helping other people that that are in it. Um,
0: so that's where I'm at. Well, you know, super thrilled to hear that. You know, you're on your second book. Can't wait to to read that. And hopefully, you know, your pal uh, Aaron will be interested in doing something with it again. It's, Who knows? Um, I think
1: I, I think you only get one movie about your life. Yeah, maybe. Life, it depends.
0: <laughs> you 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 are Molly Bloom. Like I I'm not gonna I I'm not gonna you know doubt that you're gonna be able to, to get that done if you want to get it done. Uh, but it has been <laughs> a pleasure Molly speaking with you. So, too. so how can people, you know, find you, uh, online or, you know, Twitter or Instagram? Or are you anywhere that they can?
1: Yeah. I'm most active on Instagram. Um, I'm Molly bloom. Um, is my uh, Instagram name. And then also I'm on Twitter as well. And LinkedIn.
0: Well, fantastic. Well, Molly, it was just such a pleasure. So much fun to have this conversation. I'm so glad we were able to have this cup of coffee remotely from uh, New York, (laughs) Los Angeles. But um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And Molly, thanks for coming. Of
1: course. Thank you.
0: So how much fun was that podcast? I could have gone on for another half hour to just talk about all the things I forgot to talk about, like the fact that she never had women sitting at her poker table. And she said, because women are too smart to drop $250,000 on a single game of poker. But there was so much more we could have gotten into. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Molly Bloom as well. All the little lessons in there about experience and owning your name and being seen and heard and remembered and what you're going to stand for and also what you're not willing to do. You know, sometimes you might be in a bad job or work for a boss you're not you know doesn't appreciate you and it's time to just you know walk away but i hope you enjoyed this episode of the what's next podcast with molly bloom this is tiffany boba please don't forget to subscribe leave some comments share with your friends and i look forward to having you join me again next time have a great day